from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. One of the things in making the film that that really affected us as filmmakers was just the sheer abundance of musicians who that that song Maybelline and then subsequent you know if you if you start to go down that list around the same time uh, Johnny B Good Rock and Roll Music Sweet Little Sixteen um, this music affected so many artists and in in the film we we talk to we speak to in addition to Keith Richards Steve Miller Slash Darius Rucker this Chuck really impacted and affected so many artists that came after him. I'm Sarah Fenske. A new episode of PBS's In Their Own Words documentary series tells the story of a lifelong St. Louisan. He had a sound that was like nobody else. He was a phenomenal entertainer. He was a phenomenal player. I don't care who it is, if they're gonna pick up the guitar and they're gonna play rock and roll, they're gonna start with Chuck Berry. I wanted to sing like Ned Cole, with lyrics like Louis Jordan, with the swing of Benny Goodman, and with the soul of Muddy Waters. He'll always be considered the king of rock and roll. And that St. Louisan, of course, is Chuck Berry. And that audio comes from the new episode of In Their Own Words. It premieres on 9 PBS at 7 p.m. next Tuesday. That's July 27th. And joining us today with more on Chuck Berry's life and the story told on In Their Own Words is Bruce Pegg. He's the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Times of Chuck Berry, and he's featured extensively in that documentary episode. Bruce, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Chuck DeLacus. He's a filmmaker and an executive producer for In Their Own Words. Chuck, welcome. Sarah, thanks. Nice to be here. Chuck, it's so clear in this documentary episode that Chuck Berry had this remarkable full life. How do you even begin to get that down to 52 minutes? Uh, That's a question I've been asking myself for months. Um, you know, I think you have to, whenever you're telling these stories, you have to whittle things down to the, to, the, to the big picture. And you also have to do that by telling personal stories. So when you look at somebody's life like that, you pick these seminal moments in their life. And then you, you, you sort of weave in the personal anecdotal stories that people experienced with them. And, you, and what you end up with, at least I think what we ended up with in this film, was his full story. Um, Always a difficult task to do that, but when you start talking to the people who knew Chuck the the best, you start to realize there are themes that, that start to form, and that's what helps the storytelling. Hmm. So one of those seminal stories, this is very much a St. Louis story, goes back to his childhood in segregated St. Louis. And this is a heartbreaking story about his family being turned away from the Fox Theater. Chuck, what happened there? Well, so it's really an amazing story because Chuck, he was 10 years old and his father took him to the uh, to the Fox Theater to see Tale of Two Cities. Now, Chuck grew up in the Ville, which 
which was in its own form, Chuck didn't understand segregation. The Ville was the Ville. And there he goes to the Fox Theater and they got turned away. Because they were black. Yes, because they were black. And here was a guy like Chuck Berry. Here was Chuck Berry, 10 years old, didn't understand the difference between black and white, being turned away with his dad because they went to see a film. The irony is, uh, however many years later, was where for his 60th birthday, a giant tribute took place at that exact Fox Theater. And Chuck was quoted as saying, and we have that in the film, uh, being turned away from the door at the Fox Theater as a child and being paid a fortune to be featured 45 years later. That is a stunning idea, concept. Hmm. Bruce, how do you think incidents like that and the discrimination that he faced in the early years of his performance, how do you think that shaped his personality? Well, I, uh, in my opinion, I think he uh, became very guarded as uh, as his career progressed. He he uh, tells the stories in his autobiography of being ripped off by uh, his managers and then later on by uh, local promoters uh, and all the different uh, places that he played. And so, you know, my feeling is that what he eventually decided to do was to put up a mask, put up a, a persona, uh, that uh, to outsiders was uh, made him very difficult to work with, but I think it was just a very calculated way for him to protect himself in a in a very difficult world. Chuck, just how difficult he was to work with, that comes through so clearly in this film. Just some remarkable anecdotes. Um, the interactions described by Keith Richards, you must have just been so excited to get your hands on that. Well, first of all, sitting down across from Keith Richards in its own right is is intimidating because here's a, here's a man who, in, in his own right, is part of his music history. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was most amazing to me was just how genuinely uh, enamored and how how much of an impact he was willing to say Chuck Berry had made in his life. Um, <clears throat> mind you, here's a guy who got punched in the eye by Chuck Berry because he picked up his guitar to see what guitar he was using. Here's a guy who, during the making of the tribute film uh, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll by Taylor Hackford, um, during rehearsals, Keith was the musical director. And and Keith signed on to do that because it was his dream to play second guitar for Chuck Berry. Hmm. Uh, and Chuck Berry just, just beat him up over and over and over because that's who Chuck Berry was. Um, and his he had one goal, which was to re- at that point Chuck had gone through a lot, and as Bruce says, had shut himself down. He had become distant. He had he had become sort of almost a, a a character of what he thought Chuck Berry was supposed to be. And here was this tribute to him with Keith Richards as a musical director, with Robert Cray, with um, Julian Lennon performing, with Etta James performing, and I think it was all so overwhelming to him that he that there were these people coming forward to pay tribute to him and Keith was trying to wrangle this all and he as as Robert Cray says you know Keith was trying to wrangle his hero and his hero was treating him like a son uh, like a like a son and also yeah go ahead I mean ultimately I mean it's clear he doesn't want to practice he doesn't want Keith to wrangle him but it seems like ultimately he's grateful for the role Keith plays Absolutely. And and Keith was grateful that he had the opportunity to do that in spite of all of that. 
Yeah, I got to say, you you can't help but love Keith Richards in this film because it seems like he he appreciates just what a scamp Barry is. <laughs> yeah. So, so Bruce, this is this is one of the high points of this film is you see him performing back on the stage at the Fox and Keith Richards really forces him to hunker down. He delivers this great performance. Did that represent any sort of a turning point where he became, say, less difficult in his final years? Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> I think he was uh, pretty much as cantankerous as ever uh, before and after that movie. Uh, you know, and, and to me, one of the, 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 the most uh, amusing parts of the whole uh, show that, uh, that Taylor Hackford captures in, uh, in Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll and is in the documentary as well is the moment when he turns around to Keith in the middle of a song, I can't remember which song it is, and just threatens to change the key of the song and sabotage the whole <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, so, you know, I, again, I, you know, I just go back to this whole idea of, of Chuck having this persona, the, a deliberately calculated persona that uh, is intended to keep the whole world at arm's length and uh, uh, just protect himself. We're talking today to Bruce Pegg. He's the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Times of Chuck Berry. We're also talking to Chuck DeLacus. He's an executive producer on the In Their Own Words series, the Chuck Berry episode, uh, which has a lot of St. Louis in it, including Joe Edwards, featured very prominently in this. This airs next Tuesday, July 27th. That's at 7 p.m. And not just the sort of star-studded moments later in Chuck Berry's career. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, Berry's breakthrough came, it came with the John. Johnson trio. I want to play a clip from the film. Here's Taylor Hackford and some others, including you, Bruce Pegg, um, describing the first time that Chuck Berry played with the Johnny Johnson trio. One night, he goes to the Cosmo Club. It was a blues dance club. And there's a band there, the Johnny Johnson trio. Johnny Johnson is the greatest boogie-woogie piano player of his generation. Johnny was missing one of his bandmates and asked Chuck if he would sit in at the very last minute, which Chuck agreed to. Chuck was an immediate success in Johnny's band. What Chuck was able to do is, first of all, bring the element of performance into the band. You know, Johnny's not a singer. Chuck's a singer. He can sell a song. And all of a sudden, he's a regular. They just sounded so fantastic together. And that is from the In Their Own Words series, uh, the episode on Chuck Berry. Um, Bruce, there's such a smash playing together, Johnny Johnson Trio and Chuck, but Chuck Berry then kind of hijacks this group. Uh, tell us a little bit about how things took off from there. Well, it, it, he did it in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, as the, as the clip you put, just played shows, uh, you know, Chuck really was such a, a huge persona on stage. And uh, Johnny, I think, was just one of those guys that just was very content to, uh, to play and, and have a, a couple of drinks after the show and, and then go home. Uh, but Chuck wanted much, much more, and he did that uh, as a performer. And then later on, uh, Chuck really had a desire to want to become uh, 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 well-known in the business. And so he was the one that uh, uh, took the decision to go and record uh, and go up to Chicago and visit uh, Chess Records. Um, uh, that was, you know, that was Chuck. That was his desire to uh, uh, 
to really become known in the business. And, of course, uh, he goes up to uh, Chess Records in Chicago. They record Maybelline, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Maybelline, the film kind of goes in-depth on that song as a wildly successful crossover single. Um, let, let's play another clip from the film. Here's Marshall Chess. He's the son of Chess Records founder Leonard Chess. He's talking about it as that hit song plays in the background. How did he, how did a black guy in that era, before civil rights, a segregated era, get inside the heads of young teenage white kids? Here, play it. It's really terrific, Susie, when you hear it. Excuse me, ladies, I have a special request. That was a crossover record. That was white kids buying that single. As soon as I heard it, he was singing directly to me and all my friends. He figured something out. And he said, this is the untapped market right here. We have an explosion post-war. People have cars, they have some money. These kids are looking for something. I'm gonna give it to them. Every kid was a having allowance to try to keep carburetors or trying to put dual carburetors on for a little speed. And this was a big thing, so I wrote about it. And I had my share of uh, speed tickets and uh, flat tires and what have you. But uh, it was a way of life. I wrote about it. And that is Chuck Berry in his own words, in the in their own words series. Um, Chuck, he this breakthrough, this was huge. This changed music history. It did. It did. And and one of the things in making the film that that really affected us as filmmakers was just the sheer abundance of musicians who that that song Maybelline and then subsequent you know if you if you start to go down that list around the same time uh, Johnny Be Good rock and roll music sweet little 16 um, this music affected so many artists and in in the film we we talk to we speak to in addition to Keith Richards Steve Miller Slash Darius Rucker this Chuck really impacted and affected so many artists that came after him. And and every single person understood that Chuck was difficult, but every single person could not, will not look past the genius that he, that he displayed in his songwriting, in his music, and in his onstage performances. So beyond just the difficulty of Chuck Berry, there's there's a much darker or maybe equally dark dark side to his life, and that has to do with women. Um, the film does get into his involvement with an underage prostitute that led to some criminal charges. But Chuck, you don't get into the later criminal charges where he allegedly punched a girlfriend or the allegations where he videotaped women who were using the bathroom of his restaurant without their knowledge. Those were some pretty serious allegations there. Um, why not dig into that within this episode? Well, we had to really, it was, there were a lot of discussions internally about how much time we spend on the, the, the multitude of difficulties that Chuck came across throughout his life. If, if you look towards the end of the film, we do feature some, some newspaper articles that speak directly to those um, uh, to to those charges, you see those headlines on the screen as, as y- sort of zipping. You past. do, mm-hmm. you do. But when you've got fifty five minutes to tell a story, 
you have to start to to decide at what point you you go you spend time getting deep into things. We do talk about the Man Act, which is the the uh, transporting of an underage woman cross um, cross state lines, and his time in prison. There, we talk about his IRS uh, issues that he got so deeply involved in. We talk about him spending the f- the first handful of years um, of his early life in prison for be- taking part in a robbery. I just think at some point you have to balance between the brilliance of the music and the difficulty of the human. And if we had spent 60% of our time, 70% of time talking about the troubles Chuck Berry was in, I don't know how we would have spent, been able to give just justice to his brilliance musically. So we had to make some choices. And, and you feature his wife in this film. There's sort of a heartbreaking moment where filmmakers asked his wife why she stood by him. Was, was that difficult to have that question there as the cameras were rolling? No. Um, Thameta, Ms. Berry, um, going into this, she she laid, we were very clear that, that if we were going to do this, that we needed full and open conversations. And I was not going to be hindered and not ask her anything. And mm-hmm. whenever you're telling this kind of story, you have to ask those questions so that you can understand the motivations of the people involved. If I didn't ask the question, then it would lead to the question of why. Why didn't he ask it and what was she thinking? So sometimes you have to go into those uncomfortable moments to actually understand what the motivation and her motivation was at the time. Chuck Berry had transported an underage girl cross, you know, cross state lines. Now, you know, there were there were all sorts of arguments made that he didn't know, and but we're not going to get into that right now. But the bottom line is he did what he did, and he spent time in prison for it. She stood by him every step of the way. And I outright and, 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 and simply asked her why. And she said clearly, she came from a generation where you stood by your man. Mm-hmm. She came from a generation where when you agree to spend your life with somebody, you do that through thick and thin. And in spite of the the who and what Chuck Berry was, there was a really, really deep and an unbroken bond and love between them. Uh, complicated, sure. But I think she also, she said in the interview that she understood he was a rock and roll star. Hmm. And she she understood that from day one, that that she was marrying into somebody who was complex. She was marrying into somebody who was not going to be a cakewalk, but she fell in love with him and stuck by him. It's a, it's a really interesting story, and this story ends um, as, as his life ends. In his final years, he kind of returned to his first love. He's playing rock and roll, weekly gig at this very small venue, the kind of venue that he started in. Bruce, I'm just curious about your opinion as his biographer. Do you think he found happiness going back to those, you know, those small club days, playing there, having that close connection to fans once again in his final years? I think so, Sarah. I think uh, he found we, you know, you, the the club you're referring to, of course, is Blueberry Hill, right there in St. Louis, and and uh, I, I was actually uh, privileged enough to to be able to catch one of his performances there, and there was clearly just a lot of love uh, there. Of course, his son Butch and his daughter Ingrid were performing with him as well, and I think, yeah, I think he really found uh, some great satisfaction and great personal enjoyment from from uh, bringing his career back around full circle at that point I think he you know I think he he was a guy that had done practically everything any musician could ever wish to do you know I mean he was a 
the first inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for example. Johnny B. Good was uh, featured on the Golden Disc that uh, was launched on the Voyager spacecraft and uh, went out into, uh, the, into outer space. I mean, how much more can, uh, can one person do? So I think it was a really great uh, moment for him to be able to bring everything back uh, to, uh, to St. Louis and to the small, intimate uh, uh, clubs that he enjoyed playing. Well, if you want to uh, remember more of those moments and explore more about Chuck Berry's life in their own words, the Chuck Berry episode airs next Tuesday, July 27th on 9PBS. You can catch that at 7 p.m. Bruce Pegg, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. And Bruce is the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Times of Chuck Berry, and also Chuck DeLacus, executive producer on the In In Their Own Words series. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, Sarah. And by the way, you can also stream it on PBS.org if you'd like. It's a, it's a great way to be able to catch it if you, did, if you don't catch it live. Uh, streaming PBS.org. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.